The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes, and welcome to Recovering from Reality, where I illuminate the messy and magical path of coming home to yourself. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, we're serving up the ultimate truth. Your challenges don't define you. How you deal with them does. So, are you ready to recover from reality? We have to get to a place where we can hold people accountable and hold them at the same time. Mm. And that is my gift. That's my superhuman superhero power is that again I had made that commitment that I was going to lean more into the nuance instead of the noise and so now how am I going to make that an actionable step and so for me that means holding space for people that fuck up and they get it wrong and they say messed up stuff and mind you there's a difference between you know shielding someone who's making excuses or but we know we typically you can, know. You can feel the yes. the remorse or if it's just like a half-ass apology. Yes. There's yes. this huge space. There's a wide, vast spectrum between accountability and cancellation. That was a quick clip from this week's episode. I'm so looking forward to you guys hearing from Ashley. Ashley Marie Preston. She is an American media personality, a journalist and activist, and the first trans woman to become editor-in-chief of a national publication. She was the first openly trans person to run for state office in California, too. She's originally from Kentucky, and she moved to Los Angeles and began her transition at age 19. She rose to public attention after publicly confronting Caitlyn Jenner over her support of the Trump administration. She has contributed to writing a number of publications and has been recognized for her activism by various media organizations and companies. I'm really looking forward to diving into some pretty heavy topics in this week's episode. I really firmly do believe that the way that we achieve peace on this planet is by lifting up the most marginalized communities. And it isn't until they reach equality uh, with us that we can really experience ultimate peace and freedom. And, And we dive into that on this week's episode. So With that, I'll keep it short. I just want to send love to all of you guys out there. And thank you so much for your support of this podcast. It means the world to me. Um, So with that, here is Ashley. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. I've been trying to get Ashley on the podcast for a while now. I'll tell you, I first started following you for education you know, to learn because you were on all of these talk shows saying stuff that I'm like, oh my God, she knows a lot. And then I heard a little bit about your story and your sobriety. And I was like, here's someone who's been through so much. And I talk about this all the time, turning pain into purpose. Mm -hmm. And that's my mission here. And it's to inspire other people to do the same. You don't have to be stuck in the position you're at right now, you can turn that pain into purpose and do something great with your life. So with that, I want to give you the floor and I kind of want to go like all the way back to your childhood. I'm originally from Louisville, Kentucky. 
born and raised. Um, and my childhood was interesting because in Kentucky, um, especially in the mid-90s, we didn't have language to describe trans identity or, you know, non-binary culture or any of the conversations we're having now. And on top of it, uh, I also refer to Kentucky as the land of God doesn't make mistakes. And so even if I were able to unpack my feelings around um, feeling like my gender expression didn't align with the sex I was assigned at birth, I wouldn't have dared uh, stepped outside of uh, cis-normativity to embrace that sort of authenticity. How old were you when you started feeling like you wanted to identify as the opposite gender? Interestingly enough, I don't know that I remember a starting point. I remember when I was told that it wasn't okay, though. Mm, how old was that? That was around nine years old. Okay, so it was young. And it's interesting. I have a daughter who has identified as the opposite gender since she was two. Uh-huh. And so here we are. And I'm walking through it day by day. I'm not sure how to navigate it. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, for all of the people out there who just think that one day, you know, it's like, no, she's known since she was two that she wants to... I should start saying he wants to identify as male. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know how to navigate this. Yeah. I, I, I'm a, but do any I, of I'm us a, really? No, no. It's one of those things where we take on these, um, at an early age, we're taught how to perform these gender roles around yes. like masculinity and femininity. And this is what girls do. And this is what boys do. And I think it was a little bit easier for me to embrace my expression a little bit more than others, probably because I grew up in a single parent home. My mother, um, you know, strong black woman. I come from a very matriarchal family in general. So the women are in charge. (laughs) And so many of the definitions of womanhood, um, they unsubscribe to that because we had to survive. So my mother worked two jobs. She went to school. She showed up to school when she needed to show up to school, all of those things. Um, And I really became more confused because I also started developing secondary female characteristics. So I actually started uh, developing breasts at Mm -hmm. nine years old as well. So I remember the shame of being like, what is going on? Like, now that I've been told that I'm not allowed to play with the My Little Pony, I have to stick to the uh, pickup truck of the G.I. Joe. And now that I know that I'm not allowed to play with dolls, but I have to go play baseball, you know, I don't want to create anything, um, any tension in this society that's very gendered and that is giving me strict instruction on who I'm to be. So I started kind of binding, actually, at a young age, like trying to, I would wear like a tight t-shirt, like a small t-shirt, so that it would like hold my chest in, and then I would wear like a baggy shirt over it, and that served two functions. That served the function that I could hide what my body was doing, Um, even though I felt right about it, I knew that it would be deemed wrong, and secondly, I got to hide my body in general, because around that time, my mother's boyfriend started uh, coming into my room at night and started touching me and started feeling on me right around the same time as my stepbrother, um, (laughs) right around the same time as Anne, Anne, Anne. And so I was navigating um, sexual abuse at that time too. Yeah. Quick break from today's episode to talk to you guys about Kapari Beauty. With everything that's going on in the news, my number one New Year's resolution is just to chill out. 
Easier said than done, I know, but sometimes it's as simple as taking a few moments to yourself to soothe your body and mind. One of my favorite ways to do that is with Kapari's new line of CBD beauty products. You've probably heard of Kapari's vegan premium grade coconut oil products, and it's with that same attention to ingredients that makes their CBD line the one to trust. Kapari beauty products use only full-spectrum CBD. Combined with their famous coconut oil for maximum absorption and ultimate nourishment. If you guys aren't up to speed on the whole coconut oil fad, you got to get with it now. I use it in all of my cooking and I use it as my daily moisturizer. Kapari as is dedicated to sustainable and quality sourcing with their CBD plants as they are with their coconuts. If you've got any aches, any kinks in your muscles or anything that needs relief, their CBD body calm cream and recovery balm go on smooth and feel amazing. Kapari CBD deodorant can help soothe inflammation and has the freshest, yummiest lavender scent. I'm absolutely obsessed with this deodorant. I can't say enough good things about it. Remember, it's CBD, not THC. Their coconut CBD products won't get you high, just soothe you and calm you with some of nature's biggest power players paired to perfection. If you're going to go with a CBD product, you should do it right. Go with Kapari. You can get 15% off all CBD products right now when you go to kaparibeauty.com slash reality. That's Kapari, K-O-P-A-R-I, beauty.com slash reality. For 15% off your order, kaparibeauty.com slash reality. My sexual abuse started around the age of four or five. I don't remember. I can pinpoint exact mm-hmm. memory so I know how old I was at the exact moment, but I don't remember if it was before I was four because I was too little to remember. But I mean, the messaging that I was receiving, you know, was that, you know, my body's not my own, that mm-hmm. somebody else owns it. All of the, I was just so confused. Um, and I'm sure I would be even more so if I had been a little bit older. Because it's just like, you know, yeah. you're st- at that age, you're kind of starting to have the crushes and to, you know, all of that. Mm-hmm. I didn't even have that. No. Well, that was the other thing, too, is that I remember, interestingly enough, I know that something happened before that point. I can't ex- I can't describe it. It's that cringy feeling like yeah. you don't want to be touched. Like I remember just being overconscious, like even at the pool where, you know, what toddler doesn't like to get naked and run around and do, I didn't. So it's really interesting that, um, and I'm sure that that's something that will come up more. I've been working with a spiritual advisor and psychic and, and kind of walking through some of those um, experiences so that I can heal that. Um, but yeah, I think that, that's where my life started. And so by the time I was, um, the day after my 12th birthday, I had so much going on and it came out in different ways. Like I was up pacing uh, the apartment at like 3 a.m. and like making paper mache (laughs) and just doing all these things that my mother was kind of like, that's really weird. And some of your behavior is off. And so maybe we should get you help. And so that was my introduction to my first institution. And I found my people. It was one Mm -hmm. of those things where I went in, it's almost like I went in for a checkup and came out with this host of other um, 
I guess you would say issues because. I know, but I hate that because it's not, it's just you figuring it out. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing is that like, I felt upset because I was, I felt like I was being thrown away when there should have been people who were held accountable for what they had done to me. And again, not having the language, even when I had spoke up about it before, not having people believe me because, come on now, like, it, it wasn't what you thought. Like, it had to have been something else because, first of all, this man is not gay because, like, automatically we know that men can't abuse, um, you know, the children who are assigned male or, you know. Which is just absurd because I've had several men on the podcast now, um, three that come to mind immediately, and they all had been sexually abused from other men. Uh, Camp counselor, uh, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it happens. It's happening. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of shame around that. Like, okay, like I clearly am not doing life right because like I'm doing something to earn this abuse and then my body's doing this weird thing. So maybe God is punishing me because he knows that my mind is like manifesting this maybe. Um, and on top of it, I just never felt okay. So I didn't have access to drugs and alcohol, but I had access to a psychiatrist and a doctor. And so I became so good at knowing what medications did what that I started feeding the doctor symptoms so that he could prescribe me the medication that produced the effect that I wanted to get. So I would sit around in the day room in the milieu and watch the other um, patients <laughs> go through their experiences with the medication. Sometimes we had our own little underground swap, like where we would cheek the medication and we would swap it out or, or just do all kinds of things. So I learned that when the pain got too much, I can just numb. Yeah. And even when those moments where I was out of control and I needed someone to hold me, we sometimes got body slammed. They would throw us in the walls and slam us into the floor face down. They had these transponders on their hips. They would press it. And I would never forget, it would be like code 100, three lords or whatever floor it is. And then they would come and all of these adults would just like, so being someone who's a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and violence and physical abuse, like to have that happen to someone that's already experiencing PTSD on so many levels. Um, and then they would, I remember just being like carried uh, to a seclusion room and, and then them like ripping in my pants down, injecting me with Thorazine and all of, the, of these things. So basically, to your point that you made a moment ago, learning at a very early age that I don't have control over my body. Yeah. I don't have control over what people do to me. I don't have a voice because even if I speak to my experiences and what's happening, who's going to listen? And I was around a lot of adults who had problems of their own. So just learning early on that I couldn't really count on anyone. So all I could count on was myself. Yeah. And so you go into survival mode and you left Kentucky when you were 19? Yes. Yeah. I, I almost dropped out of high school, but my aunt was like, please just finish, you know, like we can figure it out together. I'm glad you had her to do that for you. <laughs> yeah. Because so many of the people in the attics that I spoke to, they were long gone by the time that they were in high school. And that was yeah. kind of their big hardest. Once you've left it's hard to go back and get that ged to get that job to do right. the next steps so well I'm the only reason why like, i felt like i owed her that because she actually was the one who pulled me from the hospital 
because I was just at one point, it was so bad that I was home for Thanksgiving and I was just sitting on the couch and I was drooling on myself. And people were talking to me and I was just like out of it. And I felt bad for my mom because like they went off of my mother like, what are you doing? Like, do you see this child? Like, and she was like, you don't understand. Like, you don't. And it's like, none of us understood. You had all of these people who come from different degrees of trauma and abuse. And, you know, my mother is a survivor of uh, intimate partner violence from my sister's father. And I grew up seeing that, you know, and just so much. And so here you have these beings who are vulnerable but have to just do the best we can to yeah. survive. And so I felt that because she had pulled me from the hospital and had brought me in and um, really helped me get reconnected with my spirituality because she was like the super religious one in the family, but she was also the buck wild one that used to go off the hinges and so funny, like knowing her story, knowing who she was when I seen her as a kid and just seeing how her life had changed. I I, I wanted what she had. Yeah. There yeah. was just a peace. Yeah. And so I also am one of those, um, you know, trans women or LGBTQ identified individuals who I I knew deep down that my understanding of God wasn't the problem. It was other people's understanding and their unwillingness and inability to let me live in my truest form because I I never thought that who I was was a sin. Because Well, I can't say never, but as I got older, I knew better because I could have easily went out here and lived a lie and I could have drugged other people into my lie and I could have hurt people and lied to people and, and not that people who choose that route mean to do that and it doesn't no, make it's them survival bad people. yeah it's just survival but i just knew why even go there yeah um and so by the time i graduated i was like you know what i don't know who i am what i'm looking for i'm a little embarrassed but i used to watch the oc when it first came out on tv and i remember just being like yes that's like, where i gotta go i identified yes. with ryan i was the outsider mm -hmm. who you know came from the wrong side of the tracks and but i just knew that my happy ending was on the other side mm -hmm. and so i i moved to california um didn't have much money stayed in a hostel on hollywood and highland that's now like a holiday inn um and that was where my journey began and when i got a job and I was excited because, like, I was like, yay, like, I'm actually adulting right now. Like, I'm away from home. Nobody's in my business. I don't have to answer to anyone. None of these people know who I am, where I came from. So I get to just show up and be who I am um, uninterfered with until I transition on the job. Because at that point, I started discovering what trans identity was. And I started running into people who were these gorgeous women. And it wasn't just their aesthetic. It was the energy. It was the energy. Yes. It was something about them, the fulfillment. And I remember being confused because I remember seeing that, you know, we talk about the LGBTQ community, but there was still some tension there because I seen a lot of transphobia from gay men, you know, toward those women that I would see. And it kind of made me afraid to embrace it because I didn't want to lose my friends who I just made um, in the community because I never really experienced community as someone who's gay. Like, I literally was just who I was. Um, 
sort of like neutered, I guess. And like, like I wasn't really like a sexual person. I didn't really, you know, I just wasn't into that. In fact, like sex, sex, like in my like adult life, I didn't even lose my virginity until I was 19. Um, and I'll go into that in a second. So that job, I transitioned on the job and I started getting harassed and bullied, and I would have a couple of friends who were kind to me, but then, um, who were guys, but then some of the other guys and some of the women would start making fun of them and being like, oh, do you have a crush on? Oh, is that, you know, and basically teasing and jeering, and eventually I went to HR, they didn't do anything, and so I became somewhat of a liability, and I was fired. That meant I could no longer pay for my rent, and I ended up on the streets of Hollywood. Let me just pause for a second because I don't think people realize how fast that is. Yes. Because the vast majority, and I, my father was homeless for a, a pretty good time period of my childhood, from someone who had an amazing job to mm-hmm. all of a sudden nothing. The vast majority of Americans don't have savings. The vast majority right. of people are living paycheck, paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. And so when you're living paycheck to paycheck, trying to survive, especially in a city like Los Angeles, right. where the cost of living is so high, but really anywhere. And if I'm 19 you lose years that, old. Yeah. I, I have my own money now. Yeah. I'm buying belt buckles and treating people to dinner and yeah. doing all of this stuff. You don't I'm, understand savings. No. You don't have, unless you have someone that's showing you that. But regardless, even if you have an amazing job and you're saving, if you do lose that job and then you can't find one right away, it's so easy to become homeless. Yeah. Quick break from today's episode to talk to you guys about the importance of taking care of your mental health. When you're busy, like we all are, the first thing that falls to the bottom of the list tends to be taking care of yourself. How many of us have said, I don't have time or money for that? I know I certainly have. As a busy mom of two kids, it is really hard to make it into my therapist's office once a week, let alone once a month. But I do my best. I don't know if it's just the commute or the time commitment or what it is, but it is hard to get in there. And that's where Talkspace comes in. Talkspace Online Therapy is the most convenient and affordable way to make lasting change in your life with the support of a licensed therapist. Send your therapist text, audio, picture, or video messages from your phone or computer whenever you need to, even if it's on the way to work. You don't have to make appointments or deal with extra commutes. Everything happens within Talkspace's secure platform, all on your schedule. Talkspace matches you with a licensed therapist based on your needs and preferences. They have thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties. So if you have something very specific you want to work on, they'll find that right someone for you. Once you're matched, you can begin your therapy the very same day. Many people think therapy is just about analyzing your dreams or digging into painful memories, and that can be powerful, but it's also a great tool for developing coping skills, dealing with stress, and getting the accountability that you need to achieve your goals. I'm six years sober, and I still see my therapist on a regular basis for that very reason. I want the accountability and to make sure that I'm sticking on the right path. The bottom line is that life can be hard, and Talkspace wants to give more of us 
the support that we need at a price that we can afford. As a listener of this podcast, you can get $100 off your first month on Talkspace. To match with your perfect therapist, go to Talkspace.com or download the app. Make sure to use code Alexis25 to get $100 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's Alexis25 at Talkspace.com. Now back to the episode. I ended up getting fired at that point. And again, this is like retail um, in the early 2000s. So I wasn't making that much to begin with. So like it wasn't like I could cover my rent right away. Um, I ended up losing my place, losing all my belongings. I tried to go to a shelter, but the women's shelters wouldn't accept me because of my assigned gender at birth or assigned sex at birth. And I was so desperate and so afraid. I was willing to go to a men's shelter. Many transgender people are still dealing with this today. From what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, there were protections in place, and then the current administration has rolled them back. Obama created some protections, but the thing is there was never really language around it because we were still living under the radar. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. until... You know, as uh, Time Magazine referred to when it had uh, Laverne as the tipping point, the uh, Laverne Cox, yeah. that was when people were like, oh, trans identity, what do you mean? And so then we were, it's one of those things where we talk about uh, visibility as if it's a good thing, but there is also a dark side to visibility. Yeah. And so visibility without resources and allyship and support means you're a sitting duck. And so... We see that now, and of course, with HUD and Ben Carson and the current administration, that they are intentionally giving these programs permission to discriminate against trans people, even though they're receiving federal funding, which is super problematic. Um, but that was the case then. I Some of these organizations were religious institutions, so that was an issue. And again, like I said, I was so desperate that I would have been willing to go to a men's shelter. And the one or two times that I got taken into one, I was sexually, um, I experienced sexual assault in there one time by a security guard and another time by an actual uh, person who was staying there. And so, actually, no, it was two staff members. And so it's one of those things where um, I felt safer on the streets with the people who were actually experiencing the same struggle. And so I eventually... um, turn to survival sex work as a means of, you know, feeding myself and having just the basic necessities and Mm -hmm. or the basic resources. And it was such a terrible, painful thing because my first time having sex in my adult life was with a date in a car on a side street. And I remember the whole time it was all happening, looking at his, um, at his rearview mirror and seeing his wife's garter hanging and the picture of her and his daughter and, you know, just thinking like, not only am I a terrible person because I somehow brought all of this on myself simply for living authentically, but now I'm ruining someone's home. Now I'm out here. You're taking on all of his shame. (laughs) All of his shame. And I remember when I uh, started working through my sexual abuse, um, and I did a lot of very risky sexual uh, behaviors in exchange for drug money and things like that in my in my addiction years too. And I remember um, my therapist saying to me, "That's their shame to carry, not yours, honey." And I was mm-hmm. like, "Oh, 
You're so right. Because I had been carrying around that shame of of the my abusers and my childhood and all this stuff. Yes. Like I was the scarlet like letter. Well, like I'm like, too. yes. There's yes. a lot of times when we need to be cared for it. And because we don't see that happening, we step up and we take on that responsibility yeah. and it carries over. Yes, absolutely. So I started using methamphetamine because it was a social lubricant to help me navigate everything that I had to do in the name of survival. And it was beautiful. Like, I can't, it's important that I name that and that I say that because in order to understand addiction, people who aren't addicts or who we refer to as like normies, like they look, looking from the outside in, they're like, don't you see that your life is literally burning to the ground? And why would you still, but that's not how you see me. The reality that you see is not the reality that I'm living in. I'm living in a state of- Fight or flight. Yeah. Just trying to make it. Survival yeah. mode, 100%. Delusional. <laughs> I remember the first time I tried an opiate and I was like, this is the hugs that I've needed for my entire life in one pill. And then that pill turned into heroin. That heroin turned from, you know, smoking mm-hmm. into IV use. And I remember just being in such denial even after becoming a twice convicted felon in a recovery home that I was court ordered to go to, still fighting them tooth and nail. And some guy saying to me, don't you know that normal people would never try heroin in the first place it was like a light went off I was like holy shit like it rocketed me into this kind of reality that I needed this substance to survive and that's not normal Mm -hmm. but it was a great thing and it saved my life in a lot of ways I wouldn't trade those years for anything because at the end of the day it saved my life yeah well what happened so interestingly enough it actually shaped my life it actually um I found the blueprint because what happened and was I had obviously found meth and I, I I felt like I had been walking through my entire life holding my breath. And the minute I took my first pull from that pipe. Yeah. The relief. The quiet. Yeah. It was the first time in my life that my head had quieted. And I know people have different experiences with it. Some people, they're revved up and that wasn't my experience. Like I... It was the first time that I could actually be in the same room with you and experience sharing space with you and not have to battle the voices in my head that was trying to convince me whether I was better than you or less than you and usually feeling like both at the same time. It was just peace. And I remember just giving up. I remember just being like, you know what? Whatever will happen will happen. I, at this point, I'm just going to just let life happen to me, as it always has, really. But I think I had a, at least had a tiny bit of fight in me. And at that point, I remember, it, it's almost as though I remember the day that my spirit broke. Mm-hmm. I remember, like, I was at the village at the um, Gay and Lesbian Center on McCadden and Hollywood, and I was sitting in the courtyard, and I hadn't talked to my mother or, or my sister or, or my family in an Did they know that you had transitioned? No. No. And that was the issue because part of me was like, you could always go back to Kentucky. But then it was like, do I want to go back and live in a mental prison? Or do I just want to stick it out out here and do the best I can and live life on my own terms? And knowing the reality that even if my family were to embrace me for being who I am, who's to say that the environment would nurture that? 
And the truth, and, and we know this even more so because I even refer to Kentucky as Six Flags over Mitch McConnell because I literally grew up around all of that, like, you know, yeah. it's a lot. And so the gift. And I never in a million years thought I would see any of that as a gift or a blessing or any of that. But first and foremost, I met some of the most amazing human beings that I've ever met in my life while I was on the streets. You know, obviously, we hear the stories of scandal and sketchiness and all of this. And but no, we own a drug treatment center and I see all of these people that come in to get help. And each one of them is so beautiful, so talented, so amazing, mm -hmm. such big hearts. And I almost feel like the vast majority of people don't understand that addicts, a lot of us, we turn to drug and alcohol as a means to survive because we feel things so much more than regular people. Yes. Not hashtag empath, no, but like... No, we are. Legit. We feel it. We feel... And that's when this podcast was born was when I, I cracked. I felt the weight, and I've talked about this before, and I'm sorry, you guys, but I just need to reiterate this. I felt the weight of 20 years of this endless war and of the children at our borders and about what had happened. And I was just growing up. I'm still young. The first time I voted was for Obama. I didn't know, same, you know what same, I mean? I was, I'm yeah, like, yeah. so I'm waking up all of a sudden. So I've had these <laughs> eight years of Obama. I'm like, everything is great. I grew up in Southern California. And while <laughs> I had a lot of trauma and abuse and, you know, had my own chaos and story, you know, those eight Eight years were amazing and then Trump was elected and it's like my world shattered. Everything shattered where I woke up to what's been happening to indigenous populations and LGBTQIA populations and, and what's happening at the border and all of these things. And I just felt it tenfold. And in my sobriety, I dove into a depression that I've never experienced before where I literally thought every day I was going to die. I became suicidally depressed, mm -hmm. waking up to reality, hence why recovering from reality was born. Because this is about recovering from the truth of what's happening in this mm -hmm. world and how we can do better. You know, so it's I totally get that we are beautiful people. I look at all the tent encampments and all of the stuff that's going on in this world. And I and I and I look around and I go, all of these, this is someone's son and daughter. And you know what I mean? It just it hurts because you moment, know that they're great. That moment of realization for me was when so I actually had a great deal of survivor guilt because eventually I did get it together and it wasn't I, I had been to rehab at like 20 and I got I left. I didn't get kicked out that time, but I left because my quote unquote friends <laughs> were getting kicked out. And so I was like, I want to hang with them, you know, like they're the cool ones and they're the older cool ones. And I'm this like 20 year old who who could have gotten into some of the, uh, of the youth programs, which I did eventually, but um, I left and I just came to a place where I was like, you know what? No one is coming to save me. No one. I have <laughs> attempted every form of um, seeking help that I could. This is just between me and God, universe, all things that are good. Whatever this energy is that has help sustain me this long, I need to lean more into that because I realized that even through all of that dark journey that I'd taken, I still didn't have a record. I just didn't get caught. <laughs> One yeah. time I was actually taken into holding. Thank goodness I didn't get booked all the way in. I was a passenger in a stolen car and 
I remember them drawing the guns on Santa Monica and Highland and us having to get out the the car, the driver, turn the key in the ignition, turn off the car, throw the keys out the window, hands out the window, open the door, um, passenger, get out and get... And I remember that moment as my cheek touched the cold concrete in the middle of the street. And I know that there was a school bus that had just let children off. And so they're right there. So somebody's child... And that moment, I became someone's after-school special. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember growing up, being in D.A.R.E., being like, I would never do drugs, and I would never, oh, my God, prostitutes helped such immoral women. Like, you know, yes. like, you know, all like, of all the messaging, yeah. Yeah, and so I had become someone's after-school special, and I was ashamed. And I remember just going through that experience and still coming through it unscathed, still being HIV negative, still all of the things that happen as a direct result of, you know, being a black trans woman in a society that erases you at every turn um, and having to experience that abuse in a very intersectional way, like not just for being black, but because I'm a woman and because I'm trans and because all of that simultaneously. Went to go work for... I I went to volunteer for organizations because in my recovery, I learned that the only way that we get to keep what we have is if we give it away. And so just being like, you know what? I don't, what do you mean? Like, hello, like I'm a girl from the streets. I'm a lady of the night. It's all about what you're going to give me. What do I have to give? (laughs) I remember that feeling. Like, I I don't have anything to give you guys. (laughs) I'm about to file for bankruptcy. I don't know shit. Like, what am I going to give? Yes. And so- I just took suggestions because I was told that your God can be anything and anyone as long as it's not you. You know, and I remember hearing things like the calls coming from inside the house and your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go there alone. And all of these like bumper sticker things that used to sound like nails to a chalkboard. I started internalizing those things and really taking suggestions because that's where desperation had brought me. Like I just wanted to feel alive again. Like I felt so depleted, so broken down so just rolled wet and hung up to dry just I was just done <laughs> like yeah. done da, done 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 um and so I'm volunteering and eventually I get a job in nonprofit and I'm working with some of the very same people that I was out there with um so like at one point I was at a rehab and working at a shelter um and so what I realized was that In many ways, the reason why people like me couldn't get the help that I needed somewhat is because some of those 501c3s and organizations that touted these missions of, we want to save people and do this, there were a lot of nasty politics involved Mm -hmm. in that. And in fact, I came to realize that the nonprofit industrial complex in many ways is the biggest profit and the biggest scam. And so... Look at our jail systems, our for-profit prison industry. Oh my God. All of these things are supposed to rehabilitate people and get people... I'm like, you guys aren't doing anything. I realized I would rather pay money Mm -hmm. for a specific program or to do a thing. Just give the... I paid money for everything else. Why not? You know what I mean? And what I couldn't pay for, I found a way, you know? And so... Which is what my bottom looked like even I wasn't even having sex for money at that point. It was just like, oh, you have, uh, oh, you have speed? Cool. Yeah. Do you have a place? Exactly. Like, let's go. Yeah. You know? Um, and so I 
started holding some of my supervisors accountable. Like I was a union the steward. The activist was born. Yes, and like you got I was fiery like, that because you're not yes. gonna tell me what I know. You can tell me, oh no, she's not listening. She's violent. She's this. She needs to get kicked out of the program. But I am her. And I can tell mm-hmm. you as someone like, yes, I only make minimum wage. And yes, I'm not in your case management meetings and your, um, you know, supervisor uh, check-ins and all of that. But I'm on the front line here. And these kids rely, these youth, these 18 through 24, they rely on me. They trust me. I don't take that trust lightly as someone who couldn't. Be trusted before. Yes, right. That is such a <laughs> gift. I can't tell you guys the moment that that sunk in for me where I was like, Oh, wait, like people rely on me to show up in their lives and make a difference, whether it's a tiny hug or a pep talk or helping you get your resume or whatever it is. It's like I remember that feeling of like, wow, that I mean, the empowerment from that and that fire that that lights in you of like people are relying on me. It can. (laughs) And that's what I was going to say, too. It's hard to find that balance. And that's kind of where I'm at now where I'm like. I can't save the world, okay? Mm-hmm. Like, what am I going to do? You know, and because it's easy to want to do everything. And it seems to me like you do do everything. I'm like, how do you have this much time, girl? <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know how you do this. It's it's so interesting. Like, there are moments when I wish that, and this is me being really honest because we're taught to be that way. I'm like, why can't I just be, like, I will settle for mediocre, I will honestly, like, give me a Starbucks on the corner and a couple but of God's friends. God's like, no. I do. God's like, no, <laughs> honey. And I feel that, too. Give and me, I, you like, know? why do I have to be the yes. one? Because no one else would speak up. People are seeing the same things that I'm seeing, like, especially, like, at this organization I was at. It's like, why am I? And so I spoke up. And then I was afraid, obviously, because in most of those service uh, careers, you're only one paycheck away from being in the same predicament as the demographic you serve and being the addict that, you know, my last employer was the streets. You know, I felt grateful for my job, but I also knew that my role expanded beyond the scope of what they yeah. would have me to do. You were and, here to do more. And so I ended up getting fired And that was the best thing because, again, like there was a point in my recovery where I became complacent because I started latching on to fear. And fear has always been at the root of my addiction and and destructive living. And it's always been the fear that I would never have enough or that I would never be enough. Yeah. And so even to this day, when I find myself unwilling to turn things over and I find myself wrestling, like going to war with these feelings and thoughts and emotions and ego and all of these different things that come up, I can always trace it back to fear to which I can hit pause and then ask myself, what is it that I'm afraid of? What am I afraid that I'm not going to have or receive? And what ideal of myself do I feel like I need to become to be considered enough. Yeah. And that's this, and I talk about this a lot too, and and it's something that I think really is the key to, I don't care if you're dealing with substance issues or whatever, Mm -hmm. that subconscious programming that we get, Mm -hmm. that is all of this chaos that we're creating in our lives, it's based in fear. And so if we can get in there and go, okay, but what is this really? 
You know, like, what is this really in my life? It might be showing up as this, but it's not really that. It's it's mm-hmm. something based in fear or a limiting belief system or whatever it is. And when we can get into that, then we can go, oh, reminder, that's not who you are. Like, you're destined for greatness. Like, you have everything you need. You've always been mm-hmm. taken care of. And so it's a gift that we can shift that old narrative into something new. It's funny that you use the word shift because I refer to uh, the disease of addiction as uh, as a shapeshifter because it will become, it will take on and assume the form of anything. So if I'm not abusing meth, then I'm addicted to men. If it's not men, then it's money. If it's not money, then it's it's food. It's, you know, spending. It's whatever I need to try to fill that God-shaped void with. Mm-hmm. That's what I do. And interestingly enough, I think the biggest, like, aha moment that really actually wrecked me. Like, let's not even clean it up and make it fit for Disney. Let's call it what it was shattering because I remember the moment that I realized I I used to sit in meetings and I would hear people talk about, oh, when I was like high or when I was drunk, I did this and I did that. I remember thinking like, wow, that's just like terrible. Like I never did those things. And I but I actually started doing them clean and sober. Yeah. Like, I didn't need... Isn't that like... A, a drink or whoa. a drug. I know. <laughs> I know. And you're like, whoa. whoa. Here's so, this behavior showing up in my life, and I'm the creator of all of the chaos. And just yeah. realizing that the drink and the drugs were actually... A symptom. A symptom. They were, yeah. In fact, they were actually my medication at some point. Yeah. But what happened was that the disease and the sickness progressed so much that the amount of medication that I would need to soothe away the symptoms would kill me first. Yeah. And so that's how, like, I look at it now. And so I think that, so at this point, I'm on social media because, you know, you're clean, you're sober, you don't have your life all the way where you want it to be. What do you do? I'm just in time for MySpace and Facebook and all of this. So I started um, going on Facebook and Twitter and certain sites and just talking about these like very real feelings that I had. Because the thing that I remember something that my pastor from church in Louisville, Kentucky years ago said, and it stuck with me. He said, the most beautiful thing about hitting rock bottom is that the only direction you can go is up. Up, Yes. And I remember thinking like, what is the worst that can happen? But I, I don't want to diminish that, Ashley, because I, the, it takes such... Being vulnerable is the hardest mm-hmm. thing that we're ever going to do in this world. Yeah. Being vulnerable and and then showing up, and it takes so much bravery and so much work, and I, and I know that. So I just want to take a second to acknowledge that because... Mm-hmm. Um, showing up in in this space and especially in media where you you open yourself to be criticized by so many people who don't ever know the full story and who don't right. really give a fuck about the full story right. um, is not an easy task. And it's not something well, see, that's just like that simple. I didn't see the media, the reputation, the, you know, the, the status. None of that had arrived yet. Okay. So at this point, I'm just like, you know what? I'm just shouting into the void. Okay. No one's listening to me. I'm just talking. Who cares? Maybe a couple of people from the program. I just need someone to talk to. So I'm going to talk to the internet. Okay. 
And I started noticing that obviously there were times where it would cause conflict because some people would feel they needed to jump in and explain whatever to me or teach me or put me in my place. And I'm like, let me give you a list of the things you're not going to do, starting with come for me. Like, you're not like that because I still had that street fighter in me from like that. In fact, I talk about the drug. I'm so grateful to meth for giving that to me. Because honestly, I had been walked over my entire life, but something, there was like something in the brain chemistry that just clicked and switched off. And so it's one of those things where, you know, you back like a a wild animal into a corner (laughs) and then they come out clawing. And so at that point, even though I had been clean and sober, I still had that sense of duty to protect myself and to protect the people that I cared about. And so I remember I started building a reputation as the person who said the things that everybody was thinking, but people knew that there's consequences to those opinions, but what am I going to lose? Cause I have nothing to lose, you know, except for my sobriety and my recovery and my life. And there were moments when I did need to reel it in so that I could actually do the work, uh, the spiritual work around what I was feeling. And then there were times where it was like, no, you're not going to, you know, try to work the people, try working the program. Like you did this very foul thing and I get to name that and I get to stand up for myself and I get to call it. And so all of a sudden, eventually I started being asked to speak at events and all of a sudden some of the um, smaller media companies started retweeting me or sharing my post and how would you like to write for us? Um, How would you like to come on and talk about this thing or this issue? And what I realized was that I had just known that I was a woman and that's it. But I hadn't realized that outside of my own experience in this bubble that I had lived inside of, black and brown trans women were being murdered at alarming rates. And there weren't, I didn't really have a Janet Mock or a Laverne Cox or any of some of these like pre, in fact, Orange is the New Black wasn't even yeah, like before out that yet. Yeah. So people not even realizing that, oh my God, I am the messenger that I've been waiting for. Mm-hmm. And that is such a... Pause. Sh- I am the messenger that I've been waiting for. That's just like... So profound. Yes. And scary. Scary. Because it's like, wait, like I didn't sign well, and up. And that's what I was just talking about. That like dark night of the soul, the vulnerability, all of that bravery, all of that. Yeah. It doesn't come without that fear of like, holy shit, here I am. Right. I can give you the visual, but I don't want to have to draw the blueprint. And so it was one of those things where it was like, oh my gosh. And so, and I turned around and there were people behind me. And so now I became this person that people actually care about what I say. I now have a responsibility, which was hard to kind of um, adjust to because recognizing that I gave zero fucks about a lot of things for a long time, but now my actions and my words could actually have consequences and um, outcomes for other people. Yeah. So that was when I had to kind of sit down with self and explore ego and how to put it in check because I just kind of, I've always been a rebel. 
Um, I, I've been referred to as an iconoclast and like, you know, someone who's kind of just like, I don't, I'm disruptive. And whereas when I was younger, that was a very bad thing. I got many sad face stickers and like many bad grades and many phone calls home because I was, you know, she's, or at that time, you know, he's disruptive and this, this, that, and da, da, da. But what I realize now is that everything that I thought made me broken unworthy and useless are now the things that I cling on to as symbols of strength and beauty. And I use them as a light at the end of the tunnel for those who are still navigating the darkness. And that is some, it's like, I, it even changed how I felt about superhero movies like Batman and like all of this like stuff and like Wonder Woman and whole different respect because I'm like, it's glamorous on the outside, but it's very, because also what happens when you are the person that everyone relies on. It's hard. It's really, it's brutal. And that's where I went back to like, when I felt this calling, like, no, you need to create, first of all, create a space Mm -hmm. for all of these people to come and share their truth Mm -hmm. and use your name and your past to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. But then to start calling out a lot, you know, childhood sexual abuse and these causes that Mm -hmm. are really near and dear to my heart. And I wanted to do it all, though. I wanted to be marching in the streets with the women, and I wanted to be fighting on the front line of all of these different causes. And so I see you doing so much, and I'm like, how it's, do you do it? Because for me, I was like, I need to get some self-care in check here mm-hmm. because this is just stretch. Because I also have two young kids and all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm just pulling myself too thin. But it seems like for you— Well, the reason, like, at the, there was a point that—and actually, this is really recent— I'm now learning that I don't have to be a martyr to be impactful. Mm, Yes. There is this martyr syndrome that kind of happens with activists, and we're so used to fighting everything and everyone and for so long that nobody ever told us that we get to not only experience happiness, but they never told us that joy is an act of resistance. When you talk about everything that women are up against, everything that... That, that black and brown people are people of color, immigrants, disabled folks, you know, women, like everything, senior citizens, vets, you know, everything, homeless people, addicts, everything that we're up against and these systems of oppression have been designed to break us down, to, to like break us like down to, to reduce us to absolutely nothing. And so to have joy and to latch on to resilience in a way that's empowering and that is um, uplifting and that you can find refuge in, that's that's powerful. And so I'm just learning that recently. 2019, I had a major, it, it was a spiritual journey. It really, really was up to the very end. Same. Like, yeah. Where that I'm, year rocked my world. Yeah. It. And just realizing, too, that even, like, spirituality, like, it changes. It evolves. Like, it, you know, um, God is so much larger now. Like, it's universe. It's energy. It's being. It just is. And and God is everything. Everything. And everywhere. And yeah. everyone. And every. And so I think I got to this um, breaking point. And this is where we're coming to, like, what it's like now. And so... <laughs> I um, had kind of been just catapulted into like that 
I asked myself, like, how did you get into that cycle? How did you get on this hamster wheel where you're like running around saying yes to all of these different things? Because again, like in the program, just say yes. Just say, say yes. yes. Oh my God. But yes. <laughs> sometimes that has consequences. Yeah. Too much yes. of anything isn't good. And also, again, I mentioned it a moment ago when I was talking about people actually trust me. People actually count on me. It had become a drug. So people pleasing happened. Yes. And so I have been people pleasing. I was determined to become the model minority. I wanted to be that black friend for you. Like I wanted to be that like trans um, so good. representative that like I want to be in these spaces that often were drenched in respectability politics authored by people that would never respect me. But, you know, I wanted to try. Yeah. And then 2016 happened. And this is coming off of, again, eight years of Obama. That was the first president I ever voted for in my adult life. I was living in an SRO on Skid Row, was getting my life together, clean and sober. Um, At that time, this is like uh, my second um, trip. Like I have, um, I'll be eight years on March 11th. But um, at that time, like I was still like in another recovery uh, stint. And um, I just remembered after Obama having those eight years on and off by the time 2012 came, like I got clean and sober again. But when I saw everything that Hillary was up against and everything after, you know, during the general, like literally she's telling us he did this and Russia and all of this. And they're just looking at her and they're just like, yeah, but her emails, but her this, yeah. but she's angry, but she's not really? strong enough she's and she's weak and she's this and she's, mm-hmm. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, damn, a rich white woman is getting thrown under the fucking bus. So if they're throwing rich white women under the bus, we're all fucked. <laughs> Oh my god, that was my reality too. I'm like, it's game over. No, I was like, to, and not only that, but to actually come from Obama. And I just thought that that's how it works. Because again, in recovery, there was even a moment where I had to remind myself that you're not guaranteed cash and prizes. You're not guaranteed an Obama for eight years at a time. You're not guaranteed any of that. The only thing that we're guaranteed is a daily reprieve contingent upon our spiritual maintenance. So that being said, I didn't know how to take it. So Trump was elected. And then, like, I had just got into my first kind of, like, relationship. And then, like, it was someone who was still sick. And they uh, took me on a roller coaster ride. And it was very public and messy. And... It conflicted with my very clean, tidy, buttoned up persona that I was trying to pitch. And all of a sudden, shit got messy and it fell apart, but in a beautiful way. Because what I realized is that um, it didn't behoove me to subscribe to these respectability politics authored by people who don't respect trans people or black people or women or any of that. And on top of it, what is the truth about all of it? Everything. How I feel about people, what my life experience is, the fact that I was saying yes to all of these different things because I was hoping I would find myself in one of these asks that people were presenting to me. I never even thought that I would live to be this age. I, I never thought that I would ever have to adult 
ever. Like it, that is going back to fear, fear that we'll never have enough or that will be enough. 2016, all the way through 2019, I lived in this fear that I was going to be found out. <laughs> Somebody was going to realize that I wasn't this picture perfect, um, you know, poster child for what good health and good recovery and good um, trans representation and all of this. So what I got to do, and it was such a beautiful thing, I realized that I got to start my recovery over without resetting um, my recovery date. Yeah. So I didn't have to reset my date to reset my recovery. And so I allowed myself to just go through the motions. And so that led me to... Being at Politicon when Charlemagne the God was there, and after they had dished Janet Mock after she had been on the Breakfast Club, and I remember uh, one of my friends, uh, Patrice uh, Colors Khan, who's one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, and she called me because I was already going for Tommy Lahren and some other folks, <laughs> and she was like, "Girl, like, did you see this interview? Did this thing like happen?" And I was like, "What?" And I was just like, "Let's go shut that shit down." And so we go, uh, actually, let me rewind. She had empowered me to go shut that shit down because she was like, you know what? That's not okay. But as an ally, I'm going to show up for you. So know that you're not by yourself. We're going to do this. So we went, gathered Charlemagne the God, got Tommy Lahren the same day. In fact, it was the day that she was going on with Chelsea Handler. Um, And we were like in the green room. I wrote a whole article like about that later, but... So there started this thing of, you know what, I'm going to start saying what I need to say and you're going to hear it. And so then Caitlyn Jenner, then all of that happened. And so people were like, who is this person? Who is this? Like, she is shaking the table. Like, and so my name's in headlines and people are like, oh my God, like you made it, bitch, you made it. And it's like, not really, because I'm getting trolled and I'm getting harassed and the weight of the world. And now all of a sudden, oh, I forgot. I actually do have outside issues. My mental health is... Deteriorating. It is. Yeah. And so no one's really checking for that because they just want me to keep the headlines coming. They want me to keep... And so I started to build this entire career that was centered in sensationalism. Mm. And... But you're like, this is just the noise. This is not the, the... This is not the work. This is the noise. I actually... And I think people were so programmed now to uh, be attracted. Like, we've been now societally programmed to be attracted to those big, punchy moments. Mm-hmm. And then all of the work gets lost. It's so much more uncomfortable to sit across the room from you with a different opinion and a different experience and life journey and hear you than it is for me to drag you. Yeah. Period. And I faced that with Rose McGowan. That was, at the time, I had a podcast. um, It was called Shook with Ashley Marie Preston. It started as one thing and ended as something beautiful. Um, It was solely just to kind of just like, Give the people what they wanted. So people, I have a quick tongue and yeah, you, like your I, opinions, yeah, 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 the yeah, juice, yeah. all of yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very Fox Newsy, but kind of like no offense to anybody, you know? Like yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so very that. So um I I was kind of just like, yeah. And then all of a sudden, like I just started 
the guests that I would have on. So, like, I would have, like, Wanda Sykes and Kaylani and Matt McGorry and Shirley Manson and all these people. But there was, like, this spiritual... It became something really spiritual because we were talking about things that were beneath the surface. And we were just kind of talking about the human experience and how it intersected, no matter, like, which direction you were coming from. And... I remember at the time, like, Rose McGowan, there was this whole, like, media blitz because of, like, what happened at Barnes & Noble's with a trans woman, and they had, like, got into it, and and media was, like, dragging her, like, oh, she's racist, and she's transphobic, and she's trash, and she's a turf, and, you know, trans-exclusionary radical feminist, and drag her, cancel her, burn her. And I remember knowing that I had actually started building a relationship with her, and I didn't know her too well at that point, but I was like... This doesn't feel right. I don't know that I see that. Yeah. I, you know, first of all, language matters. Mm -hmm. You know, words matter. It's really intellectually lazy to just assign those kind of attributes and characteristics to someone instead of, you know, instead of leaning into the nuance, people are choosing noise, you know? And so, Mm -hmm. like, I leaned more into the nuance instead of noise. And I was like, you know, she's definitely problematic. But A... (laughs) <laughs> I have been too. And especially at that time when I had been saying all kinds of things and I had to have moments of self-reflection and and just be like, you know, as I see how imperfect I am and as I uh, allow some of that righteous indignation and some of that uh, leisurely outrage mm-hmm. to simmer down and taper off, I can have compassion for you grace. because I'm able to see myself in you. Yeah. Some grace. Isn't that a gift? And I saw myself in her. Yeah. I saw someone who was, even though she didn't start the Me Too movement, obviously, um, and she never claimed to have a Toronto Burke did, like that was something even totally different. She had been taking all of this stuff on, wasn't practicing self-care, was definitely under attack, and Ronan Farrell uncovered a lot of that. Um, And I got to sit down and talk to her. Yeah. And hear her and not judge her and not. And that friendship became such a beautiful thing because it challenged me to um, let go of the expectation that other people had for me and tap into the plans that the universe and and my own ultimate purpose had for me. So here you are today, kicking ass, mm-hmm. taking names. <laughs> Championing for Elizabeth Warren, which uh-huh. I love. And I just want to commend you for really just living your truth and showing up for yourself first mm-hmm. and foremost. Because I think that that's a real act of bravery is showing up for yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to get lost in all of that noise, like you were saying. And it comes up constantly. Yeah. I think, I think I'll probably even like wrap with this, even like, um, really, I've learned more at the end of 2019 than any. So again, participating in all of the political banter and chaos mm-hmm. and, you know, like I'm out here going against you know, these yeah. people. And so we're debating and talking about what are, how, whose candidates better, yeah. all of that. And someone had taken a joke out of context uh, from another base. And it really wasn't a problem. I had, I was in the headlines because CNN had 
asked me to be a part of the CNN HRC presidential town hall and then dropped me last minute, wanted me to like come and show face like, like you want my visibility, but you don't yeah, want my voice. you don't voice. want my voice. And so I was yeah. like, cool, cool, cool. So like I went on social media and was like, hey, like I'm not going to make it because this is what happened. And so yeah. all of a sudden protests sparked off at, at the like event and like all of that. But they took that moment to like ride the waves of that headline. Because mm-hmm. um, again, sometimes I forget that I'm who I am. I still think on some days. That you're who you used to be. Yeah. yeah. So basically, um, it started with a couple of celebrity troll accounts who started saying like, oh, you know, Warren Surrogate is, she's uh, a liar and she's problematic. And she said this, this, she tried to say that our candidate, uh, Bernie Sanders, didn't do this or do this and so forth. And I'm just like... I was just like, laugh out loud. You know, y'all are just like, whatever. I laughed it off. I I went to bed, ordered some Uber Eats and like watched Netflix and called it a night. When I woke up the next morning, my mentions were on fire. And it was in a way that not even I had experienced when I first called out Caitlyn Jenner and, and all of that. Because even during that time, like now... People, for the most part, are like, well, yeah, we understand, but they didn't understand then. And so I had been harassed and bullied, but this was different. My mentions were on fire. Um, I spent the whole day dealing with trolls on all of my social media channels. I actually had to, like, change the settings in my Facebook, which I was sad about because my profile is public. Um, and I have like a lot of followers cause I'm always at 5,000, uh, friends. And so I had to change it to where they couldn't comment unless, uh, unless we were friends. Um, I had to change my Instagram settings. I had to, and on Twitter for like a split second, I had to like lock my account down. But then someone had told me that if you're verified and you lock your account, like you can actually lose your verification. And so I was just like, okay. After a whole day of enduring that, around maybe like 9 or 10 o'clock that night, I started seeing screenshots go up. And I remember thinking, like, these people are so desperate. Like, now they're photoshopping and, like, doing all of this interesting stuff. And then it wasn't until one of the tweets had a hashtag from this like early Twitter group that I was a part of. And I realized that everything that was on those tweets were true. And it was back in 2010. It was probably after my third rape. It was when I was actually coming off from being homeless again. And I'm on meth. I'm up for three and four days because I had a relapse at that point. Um, And... I remember I was just living in, in in this neighborhood where I felt culturally inferior and I was experiencing acts of anti-blackness on a daily basis. And just really being at the lowest point of my life, like, that I could remember because at this time, like, I had been through the phase of there's hope on the other side. There's light over there. And at this point, once you've experienced that and you feel you've lost it again and it's slid through your grasp what do I have left to live for so I'm literally on the verge of suicide all of these things in fact I was admitted around that time um 
up in Rosemead. And so it just kind of, I called my mother and I just had like, you know, shit has hit the fan when all you want is your mother. And despite how things have been over the years with us, despite any of that, I just wanted my mother. And um, she was like, it's going to be like, okay. And I'm like, it's not going to be okay. So I'm experiencing so many things, right? I'm raw and I'm vulnerable because I've been getting dragged for like the last like two days. I didn't even know this many people knew who I was. Like literally we're looking at the impressions and the, there are close to a million people at this point, literally, like it was like 900,000. Like there's close to like a million people in a matter of hours who are, they know who I am. And they're, like, engaging me and they're doing all of this. But I think out of all of that, the worst part... So some of the tweets, just to be clear, um, I never, like, called anybody, like, a racist slur or anything like that. But there was definitely some racial um, insensitivity there um, with, like, Asian people and, like, Latino people, which is so interesting. Because during that time, like, I was actually dating an Asian guy and I'm actually, like, living in a Latino neighborhood. All of my friends were, like, and so, and it was a weird thing that I couldn't even speak to that. And the reason why I couldn't speak to it, that sounds like shit white people say when they get busted doing something that's problematic. And how many people have I absolutely dragged uh, until the and skin came the off their back? Too. For yeah. saying the exact same stuff, for saying I was high, for saying I was going through this. And even though we do know that sometimes that there are people who use those um, things as a shield to... It's hard to tell who's genuine and who's uh-huh. not because we've all made, you know, um, while I've never made a racial slur, I grew up uh, in a colorblind home who, you know, I didn't realize the um who grew up afraid of black men specifically because mm-hmm. i was programmed that they're the most dangerous out of and and that's just a product of my environment yeah. it wasn't even my mom it was that there was three black boys at my school and i wasn't allowed to date any you know what i mean that mm-hmm. it would have been seen as like yeah. even in southern california yeah. and so while We're in the space now where hopefully people are waking up in radical numbers and we want this to to wake up, but, and and there will be mistakes. So once again, but it's hard. I find myself in the place where the universe is like, you are the messenger you've been waiting for. So that moment that you had in your own personal life where there was a book hint (laughs) and all Mm -hmm. of those things, I'm in the same place now where it was that moment where it was like, you know what? Nothing that I say or do like I and the worst part of it, because I had said things about like, you know, there was like a girl and I was just like, oh, like, why don't you just keep her legs shut instead of like popping like, you know, morning after or so mm-hmm. again, coming from Kentucky, my mother had me like at 16. So obviously I had strong opinions about abortion because like, well, if my mom would have had an abortion, I wouldn't be here. So saying all of the wrong things, right? Like, so then they're like, oh, she's racist. And she, which by the way, like I have to have this conversation so many times. Oh my God. Black There's people cannot not be, be racist, racist because we don't have the same uh, power or dynamic. Dynamic, like we don't have the power to yes. oppress yes. anybody 
Um, we can be prejudiced, but not racist. Yes. Racism is something it's really systemic. It's yes. systemic, and in the difference. And I think my listeners, for the most part, <laughs> know the shit. We're, you know, we're a pretty yeah. woke crowd over here. Um, but we're always still waking up. So if you guys don't understand this. The difference is, is that racism is like a system. It's a system that's constantly from the beginning of time and especially in this nation um, has pushed down people of color and has not allowed for. I mean, we're still not even close to a place of equality. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the difference is that it's systemic. It's. Uh, you know, one race having power over the other. And we still see that today. Well, not only that, the thing that drove me, like, over the edge was that... So, obviously, um, I did a release a statement, and I did something that not a lot of people do. I owned it. Yeah. Which, you know, no fancy crisis PR. In fact, I had just fired my publicist. (laughs) Which is, ah, like I had just, in fact, I I mean, we're talking to you like about that. you've got to own it. And here's the thing, though. Um, um, And that's another gift of sobriety is because now when people, because you walked in and you had said to me, well, you know, I'm friends with one of the victims of the bling ring and all this stuff. There's this misconception about the fact that I was like this bling ring leader. They mm -hmm. made a movie about all this stuff. I don't even care. I'll just own the whole thing. I don't even fucking care anymore because here's the thing. If that makes those victims feel better, I'll own it. I'll hold that space. If that's what makes you feel better, it's okay. Mm -hmm. I don't really care. And I'll own my my real truth and I know it, but the other stuff doesn't really matter. I mean, that's not really exactly what you were saying, but I get what you're saying of like the gift of being able to just go, I fucked up. Well, that was the thing. It was saying, here's the deal. You, I think there were people, obviously it was disingenuous and there were like a lot of bad faith actors because they were still trying to tie it back to Bernie Sanders. And I'm like, if I'm such a racist and a misogynist and I'm homophobic, because at the time I wasn't even fully out as trans. So, because obviously like I had been fired and I was homeless. And so at that point, when I did start to get some opportunities, I realized I got them when I stopped telling people that I was yes. trans. So you have to hide, hide all of those parts and not just hide, so, but be vehemently against it yes. in order to survive. So I hated myself. Yes. And so we've seen all of that self-hate come out in yes. 2010. And this is also pre-woke. There was no woke culture. Yeah. In fact, woke was born like around 2011, 2012, actually, because before like it was just academia. Like there was no, it wasn't until somebody was like, oh, that's a problem in like 2013, 2014. That's when we started talking about being woke. That's when we started talking about all of this. That did not happen. And so there was this shift around that time. In fact, in the same week that that happened to me, there were like several people, even in the other campaign, who got dragged from my tweets from 2010, 2000. And so I'm suggesting to your listeners, if you plan on doing any kind of like public service or any kind of like major, please just go through and check your, because we all evolve and grow and that's my recommendation. But, but I don't even. Really? I, I don't even know. Wait, I just want to pause for a second just, because we want to own that. Yes, we do. But here's the thing, okay. though. Here's the thing, though. It makes it the reason why owning it is one thing, but owning it is only going to be productive if you're coming from the right place. And the reality mm-hmm. is, we live in a culture now where it's a shark tank, where people just mm-hmm. love the taste of blood in the water. Because where that's it's what I was going to say. I think the problem is not blood us. Blood sport. It's like 
of course, okay, go in back and delete or whatever, fine. But we have to look at a society as where we are just out here in this like dog eat dog, like here to villainize anybody who has a voice, especially marginalized people. Okay, so so that's what I was trying to to articulate a second ago. So basically, the issue with what I said I was about to like go off of the edge is that I had all of these people almost a million people, like impressions, all of these people lining up to call me racist, lining up to call me homophobic, lining up to call me a misogynist when America hasn't even fucking dealt with the misogyny, racism, and, um, you know, homophobia and transphobia that still continues to permeate the very vulnerable, precious lives of historically disenfranchised communities. How fucking dare you line up to gather me and not only that, I think I had to then turn in and turn the noise off and really ask myself, why is this so painful? Mm-hmm. And the reason why it was so painful was not because people knew that I used to be problematic and whatever. It was because I can actually put faces to those tweets. People that I strongly care about. People, let's just be very clear. Some of the people that saved my ass out there were the very people who were mentioned in those tweets. It was, you know, Latino people and Asian people and women who were like, you know what? You're just a woman to me. You don't have to explain all this backstory. You don't have to justify or or, or, or prove yourself. You are who you say you are. And so that broke my spirit so much. And I was so ashamed because I didn't remember. I had no recollection because the spiritual growth and gift that the program of recovery has given to me has been so powerful and so transformative that I I didn't even remember the person that I was so much so that some people didn't even believe the tweets until I owned it because it was a different voice. They were like, how could you have done that? Yes. It was they couldn't even, even believe that it, it was, was a you. different voice. Yes. Like, if you read it, you're like, what kind of... That doesn't even sound... And so, and not only that, I hated the fact that Twitter even used my new name and verification to still have those tweets when you go that far back. I even had an old Twitter handle. The old the, the old handle was I Smell Kush. That should have been an indicator, a red flag, uh, whatever. Anyhow, what that moment taught me was that I had been going through life, going through, um, even in, in my advocacy work and all of that, operating at maybe 20% because I wasn't reaching my full capacity for fear that other people would, again, that kind of like imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Like they will realize that I'm not this like perfect person and I need to be perfect. I need to be woke. I need to say all the right things. Like I need to not do this, not do that, not do that. And so what happened was, A, I got to see who the real ones were who my day ones were. Because there were a lot of people that I was really disappointed. I was like, really, bitch? Like, when this happened with you, I was there for you. I stood up for you. And not because I wanted it back, or I would have never thought I would have even been in a position to need it, to be quite frank, but I did. And then there were people like Jamila Jamil. 
And there were people like Sarah Ramirez and Angelica Ross and India Moore and all of these like amazing women and femmes and people who were like, you know what? We know who you are. We've seen the work that you've done over the last decade. We've seen the lives you've transformed. Oh, she's racist. We saw her go to Mexico and raise all of this money to take, you know, children and families and going on, risking getting arrested, all of that. Because I know that that's what my purpose is. And so I think what it was is that it's almost like when you see those movies when there's a spirit or apparition in the house and it's wreaking havoc and tearing down paintings and flinging furniture, breaking dishes and shit because it doesn't know it's dead. That's what I felt. I didn't know that I had a spiritual death and a rebirth. I didn't know because I know that sure, like I don't use drugs anymore. Sure, I don't drink. I hadn't really seen the full range of evolution that had taken place in my life. And so the universe showed me me. Mm. It showed me the me that I had ran away from, that I wanted no parts of, that I thought. And so once again, in my own personal activism and advocacy, it made me face how I approach other people even. Knowing that I've said problematic things, knowing that I don't feel that, knowing that I've changed, knowing that there is nothing that I can say to make somebody be like, it's okay. I need to have that confidence and that that security within myself. It'd be one thing if I hadn't made amends, because let's be clear, when we have harmed other people, the formula to a proper amends is to uh, first acknowledge it, Mm -hmm. ask what you can do to make it better, make the actionable amends, take an action, even if you can't make it with that individual. You make a living amends. Yes. And that's what I live on every, there is no way I can help every person that I harmed along my path, but I can do this work. I can help other people obtain sobriety. I can do all these things as as an action to the universe that you know, I'm in a state of giving and of repentance just out of love because I feel the weight of the chaos that I created. But I say action because sometimes I get it mixed up. I know it's like living in program, but I can just live and not really do nothing. I can live and be complacent. Mm -hmm. I can breathe because I translate living to just breathing. And it's like, okay, but what intentional action am I going to take Mm -hmm to constantly make sure that I not only, but see what I didn't realize is that part of that living amends for me and that actionable amends is not just helping the people who have been at the receiving end of uh, ideologies like mine 10 years ago, but it's also making space for the people that are the perpetrators of said behavior and said ideologies. That's some shit right there. That's some whole next level stuff. That's the thing we don't even talk about. Like, even when we're talking about, like, I'm a survivor on a board for uh, Mira Memoirs, which is for queer and trans people of color who are survivors of childhood sexual violence. And so there's even a conversation about, like, what happens when it's actually people who are perpetrators who are actually survivors? Like, that's some whole other, that's, that's another day, another. But so when we start looking at that, and so what I realized is that the girl who was known for getting people together, snatching wigs, gathering, you know, doing all of that, I came to this place at the end of 2019 when I realized that we have to get to a place where we can hold people accountable and hold them at the same time. 
Mm. And that is my gift. That's my superhuman superhero power is that, again, I had made that commitment that I was going to lean more into the nuance instead of the noise. And so now, how am I going to make that an actionable step? And so for me, that means holding space for people that fuck up and they get it wrong and they say messed up stuff and they, and mind you, there's a difference between, you know, shielding someone who's making excuses or, but we know we typically you can, know. You can feel the yes. the remorse or if it's just like a half-ass apology. Yes. There's yes. this huge space. There's a wide, vast spectrum between accountability and cancellation. Mm-hmm. And we have to stop being so intellectually lazy as a society to just throw people out with the baby, uh, throw the baby out that with the bathwater and actually start getting in there and doing the work with people. People are salvageable. Mm. That has been my my mantra. We're salvageable. Like we're not. I want to say though, and and that I understand for people of color, because I follow a lot of women of color on in in the internet. For the women who I hear a lot saying, "It's not my job to educate you," and you know, and all this stuff. All of that is true. Yeah, and I and I get where that's coming from, and it is our responsibility. But at the same time, we have to allow for some some grace for people who are wanting to grow or who have made past mistakes. So here's the thing about that. All of that is very true. So Mm -hmm. I have friends who are like, it is not my job to teach white people how to be better. To not be racist, yeah. It is not my job to, and to that I say, you're absolutely right. And to people like me who are like, for whatever reason, I have the bandwidth for it. I have the spiritual bandwidth for it because not only... I don't know why. I really, I think it's just the gift of just knowing and also just being able to interrogate your own um, actions and truths in a way that just like really exposes you, like really shows you you. It just hits different. The advocacy hits different. And so I can sit across from someone who has said some problematic shit and who's like, I have no excuse for it. And I don't even know what to do. And I, and that empath in me and the empath that's in many addicts and alcoholics and if, dare I even say most human beings if we don't have the distraction of technology and social media and like yeah. all of this other stuff all around we us. We all have that humanity. We all have it in us. Yeah. thing where you just, compassion. Mm-hmm. Compassion is transformative as fuck. Like I've never, I've been on some pretty good drugs, different kinds of things that have taken me high, low. The way the compassion hits and the way that it even makes you feel like a better person and builds up your own esteem in the process, it it heals everyone. Mm -hmm. Everyone in close proximity, compassion does. And so I am in this place now where now I'm in uncharted territory because now I get backlash from people that are like, oh, that's just cancel culture. And I'm like, no, white people, you don't get to appropriate cancel culture and use it as a shield to absolve you from taking accountability. And also, for my activist um, advocate um, communities, I see your pain. I see your trauma. I see the wounds. I'm here to, in solidarity, to help heal those you don't get to tell me that I can't build a bridge that is going to um, 
create these spaces of healing. I have people sometimes that actually judge me from the other side of it. I used to think I was actually like radical activist, like super like, mm-mm. I thought I was, but there are people that are like, no, like absolutely not. I won't do this. I have had people call me bootlicker. I have had people, which by the way, they've never said that to my face. <laughs> um, progress, not perfection. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> yes, like don't I ever. Know. But the thing is that like people have said like, oh, you know, she's just, oh, now she's privileged. You know, that's like the Sesame Street word of the day, privilege. And so like, I'm like, now, mind you, as a black trans woman, even as like someone who's at the societal um, at the bottom of the societal totem pole, definitely don't have the kind of privilege people think that I have. However, how I look is a privilege, yeah. how I articulate uh, myself and like have these conversations and how I show up in the command and the presence. And that is all a form of privilege. And the fact that I could even get into some of these spaces and I have the friends that I have and all of that. And so I'm in this kind of like purgatory of uh, (laughs) progressive purgatory where it's just like on one side, people are just looking for me to like excuse them or give them a pass and it's not going to happen. On the other side, people are expecting for me to just slaughter people um, for entertainment value And that's not going to happen because it's counterproductive. Who is it going to serve? And so what I've always asked myself and other people, and this is just really what I want to leave on the table, is what is your trajectory? Whether it's spiritual, whether it's uh, career-based, whether it's whatever your journey is, what is the outcome that you're looking for? Because nine times out of ten, the outcome that we desire is not in alignment or the the actions that we're taking and the steps aren't always conducive to the outcome that we're trying to achieve. And so if I'm saying I want white people to stop being racist and I want people to, obviously not all, but I mean like this system of white supremacy, which just to be clear is separate from white people, white supremacy is an actual culture. And so then I need to be able to have meaningful conversations and dialogue in a very human, um, vulnerable, again, vulnerable, asking vulnerability of someone who has had to survive and uh, engage in fight and flight their entire life. That's a lot. It truly is a calling. And so what I've realized uh, in 2020 is that I am one of, the moderators for that conversation. Mm -hmm. I am someone who I feel that the universe has, is positioning me to take that on and to create those spaces where we leave all of those preconceived notions of who people are and how we're supposed to respond to some of these things. And I know that it's going to, that I'm never going to please everyone There are going to be some people that don't understand. I remember there was a quote that I read before that was saying, you have to be okay with planting a seed um, or planting a tree and knowing that you may never sit in the shade of that tree. Like just knowing that my job is not to have people agree with everything that I say or that I do or that I, but when I'm spirit led and when I know that I'm being driven by purpose and when I know that I'm coming from a place that's void of, that's void of ego and arrogance and narcissism and all of those things that come up from time to time, 
then I know that the rest is none of my business. Wow. Well, I just want to thank you so much for everything that you're doing. I had so, I mean, so many aha moments today, just as someone who um, is also sober and also happy almost eight years. My AA birthday is March 8th. Oh my gosh. And I'll have nine years. So there we go. (laughs) So thank you so much for coming on. Can you let everybody know where to follow along with you? And I'll also put this in the show notes. Of course. Um, So I am on Twitter Ashley M. Preston, because apparently my name is too long for Twitter. (laughs) So it's A-S-H-L-E-E-M Preston. And on Instagram, I am Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-E, Marie Preston. And on Facebook, I'm Ashley Marie Preston. And my profile is public because I invite people to join the conversation. Mm, Thank you so much for holding that space. I know that's not an easy task and I'm really grateful that you're here to do (laughs) that for us. I'm so grateful and thank you for coming on. This week's affirmation is I acknowledge my self-worth and my confidence is rising. And so it is. If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor, head over to the podcast app and make sure to subscribe to us, rate us and leave a review. We have new episodes every Monday and you can follow along with us on Instagram at Recovering From Reality or visit our website at recoveringfromreality.com. 